Welcome to Patients at Risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host and the co-author of the book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, Dr. Rebecca Bernard. Increasingly, nurse practitioners and physician assistants are being asked to step into the role of physicians. While surgeons and procedural doctors have been fairly insulated from this phenomenon, the tide is starting to turn. Today, we're going to explore the phenomenon of NPs and PAs performing colonoscopies, which are screening tests for colon cancer and also used to evaluate other problems in the intestines. And there is no one better to help us understand the nuances of this procedure than colorectal surgeon, Dr. Amr Alame. Thanks, Bernard. Pleasure to be here. And thanks, everybody, for joining us. Dr. Alame, tell us about yourself and the training that you went through to become a colorectal surgeon. After med school, obviously, I went to residency for general surgery. After finishing general surgery, I did fellowship as a colon and rectal surgeon, and that was back in 2012. For the last 10 years, I've been doing what I love best, which is treating colorectal diseases. Obviously, I do thousands of colonoscopies, me and my partners. We have the Colorectal Clinic of Michigan here in Michigan, and we're home to four colorectal surgeons. We're double-boarded in general surgery and colorectal surgery. Tell us who typically would be the type of person, doctor or otherwise, that would perform a colonoscopy and maybe just briefly what a colonoscopy is in case we have any patient listeners out there. Yeah. So let's uh, say colon cancer is one of the most easily survivable cancers. It is very avoidable because uh, we have a very effective screening tool, which is a screening colonoscopy, which involves a patient under some form of sedation. In some centers, they're in sort of like what patients call like a twilight. In some centers, they have an anesthesia staff member who is administering some sedation. So they're basically completely asleep. They don't remember it. It's a type of flexible endoscopy where a small flexible scope, maybe like the diameter of like a pinky finger, it's introduced from the anus, from the bottom, and guided all the way to the beginning of the colon, which is on the right lower side of the abdomen. And then we inspect the surface of the colon or any kind of abnormalities. So we can not only diagnose problems with it, we can also intervene when we see these problems. And this is a very important part. Intervening is really what kind of give you the benefit of surviving colon cancer because about 30%, as we'll see in the articles we're going to look at later, about 30% of these colonoscopies done for normal screening will have some kind of a polyp or something which is found that would need some kind of an intervention. And I think that's where expertise plays a major role. Let's say, I mean, if somebody does a thousand colonoscopies and nothing bad happens to a patient, is that safe? Sure, it's safe, but it depends how you define safe. If let's say somebody found 10 polyps and somehow didn't remove them, I mean, that's harm being done because that patient has to undergo another colonoscopy afterwards to remove it by somebody who can do that. So it so it sounds like there's different aspects that you have to be an expert in. One is of course knowing who to do the procedure on, two how to actually technically perform the procedure, three once you get in there what are you looking at identifying the problem and then four intervening when you see uh, something that you need to intervene on. So typically the doctors that perform these procedures are gastroenterologists colorectal surgeons, maybe in some rural areas, you might have family doctors doing it, but I don't think that's super common. And uh, I I don't think it'd be very easy for a a non-gastro or colorectal surgeon to get credentialed to do colonoscopies. Would that be true? 
That is very true. Yes, the vast majority, like I would say over 99.99% of these endoscopies are performed by endoscopists that are specialized in this field, such as, like you said, a gastroenterologist who went to medical school for those four years. After that, they've decided, okay, I want to do gastroenterology. So they do internal medicine and then they specialize in gastroenterology after that. And during their years in gastroenterology, they have performed, I think, a minimum of probably a few thousand colonoscopies to basically be let loose uh, on the world to basically perform colonoscopies as a gastroenterologist. For a colorectal surgeon like myself, after completing medical school, I'm saying completing medical school like nonchalantly because obviously everybody has to finish that first before you do any kind of uh, residency, as we all know. So five years of general surgery, a resident usually completes a few hundred of uh, these endoscopic procedures. And then a colorectal surgeon like myself, who specialized after that for another extra year of fellowship during colorectal surgery, I've performed maybe like 600, 700 extra colonoscopies only during one year. Uh, so basically a, at least over a thousand before touching a patient during colonoscopy single-handedly. Uh, well, you know, it's so interesting because what you're saying is years and years of study and thousands of these procedures before you're allowed to practice them independently. But even though it takes that long for a doctor to supposedly be certified to do colonoscopies, some people got it in their heads that maybe we should let nurse practitioners do colonoscopies. You know, why not? So we're going to examine a study that was published in 2020. And it was actually performed at Johns Hopkins, which is a place that seems to have a real special interest in working with non-physician practitioners. We've talked about them with some radiology studies. But in this case, in 2020, they published a study in which they had three nurse practitioners that were specially trained, and they were trained by doing 140, 140 supervised colonoscopies. Uh, is that enough colonoscopies, do you think, in practice to be allowed to do a colonoscopy on a patient? The easy answer is definitely no. That is absolutely inadequate. The detailed answer to that question goes to what I alluded to earlier. If let's say your mission is only to get a scope from the anus to the cecum and back out, and no damage was done during that journey, and you want to define that as safe, then you have defined safety in medicine in your own world, and you're accepting whatever you want to accept as like, okay, uh, it was safe. We did uh, a thousand or whatever the number is, colonoscopies. We put the scope from the anus all the way to the cecum, and then we pulled it back out, and nothing bad happened to these uh, patients. I'm going to tell you the flip side to this story. Let's say somebody's grandmother is having this colonoscopy done, and then this non-physician provider puts the scope in from the anus all the way to the cecum, and nothing bad has happened, and then they're coming backwards, they find something which, number one, may, they may not know, does this need intervention or not? So that's a critical decision that needs to be done, which obviously 140 scopes, you're not going to see like everything that needs to be seen. But what's even worse, you find something that somebody who specializes in the procedure can address it right then and there, and you're done, basically. So that person's grandmother, the scope exits basically, and then they go and tell grandma, uh, grandma, we did the scope, 
we found something, but now you're going to need a gastroenterologist to come back and address this one because there are specialized maneuvers like EMRs, like endoscopic mucosal resections that can be done, or uh, ESDs, endoscopic submucosal dissection, and many other interventions that are in a specialist armamentarium that you see a problem, you can just fix it right then and there. So if you ask me, did we harm grandma? Yes, we did. We sure did. Because a bowel prep for an elderly person, we, we see many patients every year, like, you know, maybe 10 every year, because of when you have a thousands and thousands of people taking bowel preps, you're going to have a few of these, you know, elderly patients who have taken a bowel prep, gotten dehydrated, you know, got a little woozy because of dehydration, end up in the emergency room the day before of uh, bowel prep. And now we're going to ask her to take the bowel prep again. Let's say if out of every 100, if it only happens to 10 people, that's still a very high number because we're screening thousands and thousands of people. So every 1,000 colonoscopies, you tell me 100 of them or so need to be re-scoped again. That's crazy. That's like unreal. I was kind of disappointed to see such uh, literature coming out from a center that we really all regard as physicians as one of the amazing places to get care. When you have somebody from that center really flat out saying that, oh, it's just safe, just go ahead and do that. And uh, we should have nurse practitioners doing this because of increasing access and things like that. When the reference is that's even higher than John Hopkins is the American Cancer Society. The use of colorectal cancer screening is influenced by many factors, some of them individual, some of them provider, some of them the health system, some of them community factors, as well as public policy. But the barriers, and listen to this one, that have been identified by the American Cancer Society, not myself, not John Hopkins, not the best center in the, in the nation. American Cancer Society identifies that the barriers to screening colonoscopies include, number one, no usual source of care, like the, the individual who I don't even go to see a doctor. So this guy does not get a screening colonoscopy. Inadequate insurance coverage. Like I want to get a colonoscopy, but I don't have insurance. Number three, lack of provider recommendation, not lack of a provider that does it, lack of a provider recommendation, meaning this person goes to their primary care provider, the primary care provider for one reason or not does not recommend it. Logistical factors like transportation, I don't have somebody to take me, scheduling, I'm too busy or things like that. And language, you know, like uh, I cannot really understand what's going on. Fear of the procedure has been identified and lack of knowledge. Notice none of them include, there's no provider to do the procedure. This is per American Cancer Society. So in other words, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that could be addressed before you start talking about letting people that aren't properly prepared do the procedure. And I take your point very well because I'm I'm a primary care physician. I take care of a largely uninsured population. I'm very lucky that I can get the fecal immunochemical testing done for just $15. So that's always where I start in an asymptomatic person. But if I need them to have a colonoscopy, the best price we can get in our community is about um, $900 to $1,000. So, I mean, it's great. get there with time and save up for it. But, you know, it's, it's a lot for a lot of patients. Yeah, but um, but even with that, I mean, nine hundred some dollars is actually amazing to get a colonoscopy out of pocket. And we do have some endoscopy centers around us here in Michigan. We're located in uh, by Metro Detroit in Southeast Michigan. Uh, we do have some endoscopy centers that are kind enough 
to off cash pay discounts for patients that don't have insurance, like you're saying, to help with that. But with that said, the percentage of society that should be screened has been identified as about, you know, 80% is what the American Cancer Society has identified. Michigan, we're at 74% currently. Florida is at exactly about 71%. So you guys are almost there. But like you said, these low-lying fruits, you know, there is not a patient that comes into my clinic that no matter what the problem is, even if they have just belly pain for whatever reason, that I don't ask about a screening colonoscopy. Because it's the easiest cancer to survive. It's the easiest cancer to not get and survive and treat, really. And that's part of also why I love taking care of colon cancer patients, because it's a treatable disease as well. But maybe we're I'm diverging a little bit. To well, you are, but, but, in, but not in a bad way, because when I was in my residency, actually, actually, I was an intern. One of my very first patients that I admitted to the hospital came in with abdominal pain, and she had an obstruction from colon cancer. She was in her 60s, and she had not had a colonoscopy. I don't know, remember why. But unfortunately, it was so advanced and she did end up passing away from it. And she was just the most darling, wonderful woman. And she suffered so much with pain and different symptoms. And I'll never forget it. And actually, it's one of the reasons why I'm just like you. I'm extremely passionate about talking to patients about colon cancer screening because no one needs to go through that. That's true. So thank you for what you do. It's it's so important. Well, let's we'll jump back to the study because we first of all, we said that these nurse practitioners had practiced 140 times with a supervising physician, and they were allowed to perform colonoscopies on patients. There were 1,425 colonoscopies completed during the study period. But one thing that's interesting is that 400 of the colonoscopies were excluded from the study. So the nurse practitioners did them, but they weren't included in the study data because the patients either did not have a, a good enough prep So they didn't have clean enough bowels, or it turned out that they actually had a disease process like inflammatory bowel disease. And so the physician that was supervising, or I guess around, jumped in to help. So what are your thoughts about excluding those factors in this study? That's the worst thing you can do when you want to evaluate if somebody can do something or not. I mean, are you doing it or you need somebody always on backup? Let's say the conclusion from this study is, It is safe for nurse practitioners to do it as long as a gastroenterologist is on backup standing next to them. It's terrible. That doesn't actually end up saving the system any any money. Because they were talking about this as a cost savings, of course. Of the patients that had the procedure done, there were 1,012 subjects. I don't know how they ended up doing 1,400 colonoscopies on 1,000 people. I don't think they got into that. The uh, mean age was 56 years. There were 50-50 men and women. But what was interesting is that 74% of the patients were African-American. I saw that. It was very weird. I've actually, I'm not going to say never read a study that had such a severe skew in demographics, but uh, this is what happens when you have retrospective studies. Like when you have a retrospective study, you know, the patients are not randomized. You know, does this person get a nurse practitioner or a physician to analyze this? That's what you get. You get study where uh, data is just so skewed. But even with that, the study does not conclude that it is safe to do this, even with that. So we'll get into the social justice question, because I will tell you that there was a lot of outrage at the disproportionate number of Black patients who received this sort of experimental uh, evaluation. 
But before we get into that, let's just talk about some of the parameters that they looked at. They uh, evaluated sequel intubation and said it was successful in 98.5% of patients. What is sequel intubation and what does that matter? Sequel intubation is a measure of you were able to put the scope from the beginning to the end of the colon. So from the anus all the way to the beginning. And that is a quality measure that you should have sequel intubation. I mean, any fellow of gastroenterology who has not finished fellowship even can probably intubate sequel like 99% of the time. Almost every physician has like over 99% sequel intubation. So it's you wouldn't be impressed by this number. It's like, well, yeah, they're supposed to get to the cecum. Yeah, yeah, you're supposed, exactly. You're supposed to do these. These are like the things that you're supposed to do. The bare, like one bare one. minimum. Yeah, 101 is what I'm saying, 101. And, and then they said that the mean withdrawal time was 18.9 minutes. What does that parameter mean, withdrawal time? Yeah, so withdrawal time, it's the time it takes an endoscopist once they reach the cecum, which is the beginning of the colon, and they start withdrawing the scope back through the colon, how much time it takes them to examine this. The minimum withdrawal time of eight minutes is what's recommended to say that somebody like took their time uh, looking on their way back. Yeah, like obviously you don't want to drag it out because people are under sedation right. and things like that, but you need to make sure that you get a good enough look. So they used that parameter, and then they said that the mean adenoma detection rate was 35.6%. Tell our audience, what is an adenoma, and what are your thoughts on this detection rate? So an adenoma is, like I mentioned earlier, when we're doing a colonoscopy, when we find aberrations or abnormalities on the surface of the colonic wall, it usually looks like, like a little wart, let's say, or a little polyp, a little outgrowth on the wall. That's when an endoscopist puts a little biopsy forceps or a little lasso around it and snips it off. And then we send it to the pathologist. And that is really the life-saving part of a colonoscopy, because once you have eliminated the adenoma, you avoid what comes next, which is carcinoma, and which is what is known as colon cancer. So we do the colonoscopy to remove adenoma. And when we remove adenoma, you don't get carcinoma or cancer. An adenoma detection rate of 35.6% is, is regarded as a good enough detection rate. But check this one out. So let's say if this NP is supervised by a gastroenterologist next to him or her, obviously, and an adenoma is found, did the gastroenterologist have to intervene in any way to remove that adenoma or not, or assist in any way? This is what, you know, retrospective studies in this situation really have uh, no power to make decisions over this. Right. You know, and, you know, some people uh, question. So when you look at adenomas, there's also some adenomas that are have benign characteristics and are less likely to progress to carcinoma and some that are riskier. And they don't tell us anything about the pathology. Do you think that's important or not really? Very important to know really the whole picture to decide like what was removed. Because like I said earlier, sometimes you find an adenoma or a polyp that is more flat. And then does this endoscopist, the non-physician endoscopist say, well, this is beyond what I can do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have the gastroenterologist do a scope again next week and remove this. 
Like that's a shame, really. Well, I would to... guess at least four hundred or five hundred people had another colonoscopy done because there were a thousand people in the study, and there were fourteen hundred colonoscopies done. But they don't give us a lot of detail that I could see uh, on that. I can tell. I can tell you roughly. I don't have the exact number in my practice, but if if let's say I do a thousand colonoscopies, the number of patients that have to come back and get another colonoscopy done, you can probably count on your fingers like this, and that's it. It's not. 400 out of a thousand. That's right. That's a pretty that's huge a, percentage. That's, that's a very large number, actually. Now, they did say that there were no adverse events, including, thank God, colon perforation or delayed post polypectomy bleeding. But how frequent would those events be? And is 1400 or 1400 colonoscopies enough to see those kind of outcomes? Uh, let me just say this study chooses the safest of safe. A patients that you're doing an endoscopy in. You're doing this in a screening colonoscopy, like somebody turned 45 or, or 50, and then they have zero problems, basically, and they go see you or their other primary care physician, and the primary care physician says, congratulations, you need a colonoscopy. You just you, you just graduated. Happy birthday. <laughs> happy, happy birthday. Here's your referral for a colonoscopy. So that from 15,000 patients they're estimating maybe one person would have a perforation or a problem like that. This is not a patient who, say, has a large mass that was referred to me because they, there's a large mass. Like, can you remove this with a colonoscopy? And who I sit in the office and tell them, we're going to try and remove it with a scope. There's a very high risk that because the wall is so thin that something may happen. I may have to intervene surgically and fix it and whatnot. This, we're not talking about those patients. We're talking about the patients that basically they're minding their own business going about their day they go to have a normal checkup and then you need a colonoscopy as part of your normal healthy screening they basically maybe just take a blood pressure medication maybe they take no medication and they still need a colonoscopy 15,000 of those people is the number to accept like okay one person got a perforation and so this is nothing for them to congratulate themselves over. You do not expect a perforation. You do not expect post polypectomy bleeding, especially in this patient population. In 1,000 screen colonoscopies, if one person got perforated, you would be over 10 times the acceptable rate. So it's good that none of them, and thank God for that, obviously. Right. When you start looking at post polypectomy bleeding, now, whenever we remove a polyp, we obviously shave it off the wall of the colon by one instrument or another that I mentioned earlier. It's either little biopsy forceps, like little tweezers. We grab it and pluck it off, or a little lasso that we put around it, and we tighten the lasso so it kind of cuts it at its uh, surface. The bigger the polyp, the higher the risk of something happening afterwards. The bigger the polyp, it would be basically kind of inferred from what they've done that They've had the gastroenterologist basically do it. So if right. they're dealing with the low-lying fruit also, which is, oh, you know, there's a, a small polyp. Let me just pluck this one off. The chances of having a post-polypectomy bleed from those polypectomies is extremely, extremely, extremely low and unusual, actually. I've removed thousands and thousands of these polyps. The only times that I've seen post-polypectomy bleeding is when we've had like large, like two and a half centimeters, like an inch in size. Right. And we're, we're denuding parts of the wall basically to help avoid surgery. 
these patients, basically, the chances of the patient having postpalpectomy bleeding is higher, albeit it's still low because we do ensure that everything is nice and hemostatic. The bleeding is stopped, you know, at the time of the procedure, but post-polypectomy, so after the polypectomy has been removed, say somebody's home in a day or two, they start having bleeding, is extremely low and unusual in very small polyps. Well, we've talked about some of the major limitations of this study, but let me read to you the conclusions of the study authors. It says, three fellowship-trained NPs in colonoscopy. Wait, I got to stop right there. They called- I was going to stop you before you stop yourself. But go ahead. You, you yeah. Say, you, How you dare they that. call this a fellowship? The fellowship for physicians is incredibly rigorous. It is it, this doing 140 colonoscopies is not a fellowship. I mean, I, I, I don't know what to I don't know what to tell you about that. I was going to say, like, the number 140, who came up with that number? That's the problem is a lack of standardization. We always talk about this. And this is a perfect example. So their conclusion was that three fellowship-trained NPs in colonoscopies satisfied the quality indicators proposed by the task forces and GI, demonstrating that adequately trained NPs can perform colonoscopy safely and effectively. Is that a fair conclusion? If you want to define safety by the patient not dying during the endoscopy, then you've really defined safety in some world that you decide to live in. Safety, in my opinion, is a situation where I would have my grandma or or family member go and get their endoscopy, and I know they're going to get a care which is supposed to be delivered. If, let's say, I send my family member to Johns Hopkins now, it seems, and a non-physician provider does it and is like four out of 10 needs to have a redo colonoscopy. What a shame. Absolutely. I mean, if, is, is, is that, if that's safety, then holy shnikes, basically, what are we doing? I always take offense to their extrapolations because they'll take these extremely narrow, limited circumstances and they'll make a conclusion that puts out a headline like, Nurse practitioners can perform colonoscopies as well as a gastroenterologist. I think it's quite crazy to uh, basically accept any of this study as basically solid evidence in terms of uh, whether the structure of the study, whether the conclusions from the study, and many other things. If you want to compare apples to apples, then you go ahead and see the difference between how many patients needed even a simple measure of how many patients needed a repeat colonoscopy from a thousand done by a gastroenterologist or a colorectal surgeon or any uh, one who is currently the standard of care and a non-physician provider. If that number is the same and the same interventions are done and the same, everything is equal the same, I can argue in some way that that is a good conclusion. But for that to happen, we all know it's it's impossible for that to be done. And even if it is done, there's no way that it will be the same. Right. It's, it's impossible, basically. Well, we've really just begun to scratch the surface of this article, especially when it comes to the social justice angle. So we're going to conclude our podcast part one and come back and join us at our next podcast where we will continue this discussion with Dr. Amer Alame. 
If you'd like to learn more about this topic, I encourage you to get the book Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. It's available at Amazon and at barnesandnoble.com. And if you're a physician and you'd like to learn more about getting involved in advocating for physician-led care, then please join our group. It's called Physicians for Patient Protection. Our website is physiciansforpatientprotection.org. Thanks so much, and we'll see you on the next podcast. Mm